Hello, hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Plant Powered People Podcast with your hosts, Michelle Kane and Tony Okamoto. Today, we're really excited to be bringing on an extra special guest. I'm actually surprised we've never brought him on before, but this is Tony's husband, Paul Shapiro. I met and became friends with Paul in 2015, and it's been really cool to see his career transform and to see how much thought and effort he put into his career choices based on what's going to be the most helpful to animals. And I'm really excited to share with all of you his thinking and how he's rationalized his different choices throughout his career and to get you inspired about the different ways you can make an impact on the world based on what you do with your job. And I'm especially excited because not only Paul, but I know other people who didn't have this strong set of skills that that they thought could be applied to any position in any field. And they gave it a try anyway. And they learned as they were on the job, they studied hard and, and it's really changed their life. And also their impact on the environment, on animals, on human welfare as well. So this one is really special to me and I hope you enjoy. Before we jump into the episode, we'd like to give a big thank you to our sponsors of the show, Caraway and Organifi. Now, if you've listened to the show for a while, you know how much Tony and I love Caraway. I have their pans, pots, pans. I have the baking sheet and muffin tin. Anyway, I love them so much because they are ceramic coated. So rather than having Teflon or lead, cadmium, other toxic materials that go into nonstick cookware, they use ceramic coating. And so it is clean. You can actually cook with less oil. Food slides right off. It's easy to clean when you're done cooking. I just love them. And they also have some really great storage containers that you can check out to get your spring cleaning on in your own kitchen. They're really, really beautiful. You can visit carawayhome.com slash plantpoweredkitchen to take advantage of their limited time offer for our listeners to enjoy 10% off of your next purchase. So again, visit carawayhome.com slash plantpoweredkitchen or use the code plantpoweredkitchen at checkout. Caraway, non-toxic cookware made modern. You probably recognize Organifi from their extremely popular protein powder. And it's so fitting that my husband is today's guest while we're promoting a product that he uses on a daily basis. He's really athletic and consumes a high protein plant-based diet. And Organifi gives his morning after workout smoothies the boost of protein that he desires. In addition to their well-loved protein powders, they also have a line of organic superfood blends that make it easy to get in more plant-powered nutrition, vitamins, antioxidants, and superfoods, even when life gets really busy. They have several powder blends, including a green juice packed with veggies, a red juice packed with dried fruits and superfoods, which is my favorite. It tastes straight up like fruit punch and other science-backed health blends as well. Check them out and let us know what you think. Head over to Organifi.com slash plant power. That is O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com slash plant power and use the code plant power for 20% off of your entire order. In this episode, we're going to dive deep into alternative proteins and how they can be used to really move the needle forward in terms of helping animals and our planet and our world. And you're going to learn a lot. So We hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, Paul. 
Welcome to the Plant Powered People podcast. Hello, hello. That's my best Michelle impersonation. <laughs> Good. It's so cool being in a space together. We haven't recorded with a guest in the same space for years now. Mm-hmm. For a while, we weren't even recording together. So yep. I'm glad we, to be here, Paul. We originally started with Michelle and I always in the same place, but yeah. throughout well, the pandemic, we didn't. Considering that, Tony, that you and I live in the same place, before the pandemic, Michelle was kind of like a roommate or you were like a roommate to her uh, mm-hmm. in her house. I'm but... sure Dan loved that when they were in a one-bedroom yeah, and Tony would sleep on the couch. <laughs> we were in a tiny one bedroom too. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on to our podcast. You. I figure it will be maritally enhancing. <laughs> Paul was nice enough to have me on his podcast. It did really well. It was actually one of the more popular episodes of the Business for Good podcast ever was your episode. Oh, thank you. Well, nice. uh, you know, thank me. Thank the listeners. They, 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 people spoke. Uh, so today we have a lot of fun stuff to talk about, but we'd like to get a brief intro to who you are. Uh, probably for the listeners of this podcast, the thing they're most interested in is that I'm the husband of Tony Okamoto and I live in her shadow. Um, but I, I do have somewhat of a life outside of that, which is that you mean that is Eddie's dad. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. On Instagram, I, I uh, generally post to Eddie the pity to make sure people are following our dog's exploits. <laughs> Just before we were recording, Paul was like, look, on the security camera. Eddie's pooping. <laughs> oh, that's true. So yeah, t- Tony is very concerned about security and has like cameras, like the, the like ring type cameras, although they're, they're a different brand and they're like uh, on the house and they're motion detected. And Usually, I just look at it to see where our dog is going to the bathroom. All <laughs> dad. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Makes it easier to go pick it up. <laughs> uh, but to answer your question directly, Tony, I'm um, somebody who cares deeply about animals and have devoted my life to trying to help them. And I spent uh, more than 20 years in the nonprofit sector trying to advance animals' interests, especially animals who are used for food. And uh, then I've spent about the last five or so years uh, trying to advance their interests via food technology and innovation to try to create new foods that will render animal exploitation obsolete. I want to talk about the evolution of that because you were kind of extreme at some point when you were a teenager and you've been vegan for a really long time. How long? Uh, I became vegan in 1993. So as of this recording, that's like 29 years. And I remember at the time I thought like people were telling me like it was, it was kind of like holding your breath, you know, like if, if you hold your breath, you can do it for some time, but if you do it too long, you'll die. Mm-hmm. And like, that's what people thought it was like for me back then. They're like, well, you know, you might be able to go without eating animal products for like weeks, maybe even months, but if you do it too long, you're going to die. And I've been doing it for nearly three decades. So I haven't died yet. <laughs> well, thank goodness for that. Uh, okay. So When you started, you were very passionate about helping animals. And, and since then you're, you're still very passionate about helping animals, but your approach has changed. Can you explain the evolution of where you were then and where you are now and how you got there? Yeah, my my views over what the best way that I personally can help animals have evolved over the last three decades. And so when I got started, I was I would say like this like stereotypical angry vegan. I was this like young teenager and learned all about the horrible things that we do to animals. And I was really upset and I thought, you know, I, I should show how upset I am. And so I would do things 
like organize raucous demonstrations, commit civil disobedience, and and more. Um, and so at that time, I, I really like wore like being arrested as like a badge of honor almost for animals. Like I was showing like, oh, like I'm willing to do anything for them. Um, but uh, after it became clear to me that this wasn't really working, it wasn't really doing a lot for animals, I started thinking, you know, people in my social circle, myself included, would they'd say things like, oh, I would do anything. I'll stand out in the cold for the animals. I'll go to jail for the animals. I'll die for the animals. And I was like, well, you know, would you put on a tie for the animals? <laughs> you know, <laughs> would you get a haircut for the animals? <laughs> you know, uh, you know, Wait, like, Paul, one of the first times <laughs> that I met you, I was in college and you were giving a speech, I think, or a talk at a local library. And you showed in your presentation some photos of like younger Paul with long hair. <laughs> Oh, yeah. And, then, and yeah. then you'd flip to the more polished. And I think you were talking about how you can make a bigger impact when you become more relatable to the mainstream people. Yeah. You know, I, I, mean, I wish that we didn't live in a society where looks mattered so much, but they do. Um, and so if, it, you know, I was like really involved in the hardcore and punk scene. And in that scene, it's reputationally enhancing to look countercultural. And so like many people, um, you know, I had dreadlocks and earrings. It's like back in like, you know, 1994, 1995 and so on. But it became clear to me that, you know, I wasn't just trying to help animals within this subculture that I should be trying to help animals within the entire culture. And so and this is like this like dramatic um, experience where I like, you know, cut my hair, took out my earrings, started dressing a little bit more mainstream. And uh, I remember I still was holding on to like these long sideburns and I for years had these long sideburns. And then um, at the time I was running an organization that I had started called Compassion Over Killing, which is now called Animal Outlook. And they had like an intervention with me over my sideburns. And they're like, listen, it's not making you look professional. And I, I, it was like this strategic retreat that we were having. We we're at this like remote house. And I went into the bathroom with a razor and I shaved what I thought was a sufficient amount of them off. And I came back out. I'm like, okay, is that enough? And they looked at me they're like, no. Not <laughs> so I went back in and I shaved them off again, even like higher up. And I came back out and they said, that'll do. <laughs> so for like the last 20 or so years, that's what I've done. I'm envisioning this really dramatic thing where you you go in uh, into a, a, a barber and with a stylist there and they... They have you facing the camera and then they flip you around and then they flip you around again and you're an entirely different clean cut person. <laughs> it, it was a little bit like a more like temporally uh, lengthy than that. But yes, yeah, so that is the essentially what happened over a period of some time. And did you notice those changes immediately? Mm -hmm. So now you're a clean cut, Paul. Did you... Did you feel like people were more receptive to your your vegan message? Oh, for sure. It was dramatic. I mean, it's a stumbling block for people. I wish it weren't, um, but it's a stumbling block. And you have to decide, or at least I had to decide at that time, you know, what was more important to me, like what I perceived as my personal identity uh, or actually doing something effective to stop the horrible violence that we commit against animals. And it was very clear to me, which was more important. And so what I noticed, though, interestingly, was like over time, my personal identity changed. And, you know, maybe it was just because I was getting older. Or maybe it's because I was involved in a different social circle or maybe because I was just like internalizing the new look that I had. But I, I really did uh, come to see myself differently um, than I did when I was a young teenager. However, the moshing did not stop. <laughs> well, you know, I'm in my 40s now and uh, things like injuries that used to heal really rapidly no longer heal that quickly. <laughs> like in my 30s, I realized that they weren't healing like bruises or cuts didn't heal as quickly as when I was in my 20s. And now what I'm realizing 
is like sometimes they don't heal at all. Like, you know, it's like you have an injury and it just stays there for like the rest of your life. It just hurts. So uh, my my time spent moshing, while um, it's not totally at zero, it's pretty close. Yeah, in the kitchen, you can find him like moshing around. Yeah, but a fun fact, uh, the very first time that Tony and I met each other was actually at a hardcore show mm -hmm. in 2012. We didn't become a couple for many years after that, but that is how we met. He doesn't remember, which that's a story for another day, but <laughs> uh, that's actually how we, when we connected again in 2015, he didn't remember. And he was like, hi, I'm Paul. And I was like, uh, yeah, I know. We talked for a while. <laughs> yeah, I know. No, Tony is like making it a little bit more diplomatic than it actually was. Cause I walked up to her, we were at this conference and, um, I said, Hey, I'm Paul. She goes, Oh, you know, we've already met a few years ago. And so like, you know, forgive me. I thought maybe it was something like I'd given a speech or something. Yeah. Briefly met at the end. And she was like, no, no, no. We were at this concert together three years ago and I, I didn't want to lie. So I was like, oh yeah, I, I remember being my memory. So I don't remember us. Meaning she's like, oh, we've talked for a while. <laughs> like, okay, well, sorry, uh, you know, but nice to meet you now. And then she's like, oh, well, I actually Facebook friend requested you and you ignored it. <laughs> I was like, um, you know, uh, so I was like, the hole was very deep, uh, th that I had dug, but, uh, through this <laughs> and some, somehow it still worked. It took a couple of years uh, after that for us to become a couple, but somehow I overcame these very long odds. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, uh, right after you were in your activist phase, then you went into a more polished look and what was your approach then to animal welfare activism and, and helping people understand why animals were suffering? And, yeah. and I, th I think, you know, when I was a young teenager, I thought just like displaying anger over how animals were abused was like my outlet. And then as I got more into college and shortly thereafter, I started thinking, you know, sunshine is the best disinfectant that we need to show people what's happening. And so I started conducting undercover investigations. And so we would go to egg farms and broiler chicken farms and slaughterhouses and uh, use hidden cameras to document what was happening. And, you know, there's no YouTube at that time. So we would then be dependent on giving it to like CNN or the New York Times or the Washington Post and um, and showing these undercover exposés. You know, now, you know, uh, organizations put out videos and they're seen by millions of people overnight. Back then, you know, we were literally like printing VHS tapes. And for those of your listeners not familiar, it's like a rectangular piece of plastic <laughs> that, you know, you used to put in a box and then it showed you like one thing and then you had to rewind it, you know, and then you'd watch it again. Um, but I remember uh, telling my colleague um, at that time, her, her name was Mian Park, that after we sold a thousand VHS copies of the first egg factory investigation we ever did, we made this 18 minute documentary called Hoop for the Hopeless. And we sold a thousand of them. And I remember telling her, I cannot believe that a thousand people saw this. I can't believe that a thousand people saw it. And maybe they showed it to a friend, maybe 2000 people showed it. If Michelle made a video that only 1000 people saw, she would be like, what did I do wrong? Why is this <laughs> happening to me? Yeah. Unless it's on YouTube and now no one sees anything anymore. Yeah. <laughs> yeah but you know, that was more than 20 years ago. Like we put that on 2000. And um, so at that time, like, I really thought like, oh, you know, we just need to show people what's happening. Uh, eventually, I came to think it's not so much that we need to show people what's happening because, you know, there's this saying that's completely false, which is, oh, if slaughterhouses had glass walls, everybody would be vegetarian. Well, the majority of people who watch slaughterhouse videos don't go vegetarian. So, like, obviously, it's not true. Um, and so I, I just began thinking, you know, maybe like the answer is going to be like in public policy, like most people will oppose what we do to animals, like they wouldn't want to do it themselves. If they could vote to ban it, they would. 
Um, and so after, in 2002, Floridians voted to ban gestation crates, these tiny crates that pigs on, on breeding pig farms were kept in. And I thought, you know, this is a really promising way to actually codify social norms relating to animals, that people may not yet be voting with their dollars, but they can vote literally in the voting booth. And so at that point, I decided to really start um, lobbying to pass more laws to protect animals, which, of course, I, I think all of these are good for the investigations and for the lobbying and so on. And we did pass like a series of about a dozen state laws to um, ban various inhumane practices from veal crates for calves, battery cages for chickens, uh, gestation crates for pigs and tail docking of dairy cows and so on. But eventually I started getting a little bit worried that there might be more that I could be doing. And I was reading about the history of the animal protection movement more and more. And, you know, it's interesting, like in the U.S., the animal movement really got started officially. And there were some efforts, but like organizations got founded in the late 1860s, like the ASPCA and others. And the big cruelties that they were combating largely related to horses. They were really concerned because horses are being flagrantly abused in the cities of New York and Boston and Philadelphia and so on. And so they crusaded for all these welfare reforms. They wanted horses to have uh, resting hours. They wanted watering stations for them. They wanted Sabbath days where the horses couldn't be worked at all. And it was this huge slog like to try to pass these laws to protect horses who were working. And then Henry Ford comes along and completely renders the exploitation of horses obsolete. You know, Henry Ford, who didn't care about horses at all, did way more for horses than the animal advocates were even seeking to do. Like None of the animal advocates were saying we shouldn't be using these horses at all. And I started learning about what other categories of animal exploitation got ended and how. So, for example, we used to get all most of our light from whale oil. The whaling industry was a huge industry. Tony, you look like you want to say something. I do. For those who don't know who Henry Ford is. Okay, the founder of Ford Motors who created the Model T, which Got then, it. which then, you know, displaced horses because we had a much better way to transport ourselves. And, you know, Henry Ford actually famously said, you know, if I had asked people what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's not what he did. Uh, so similarly, in the um, in the mid 19th century, like we were lighting our homes with whale oil it was a huge industry to slaughter all these whales. And it was one of the most important parts of the entire American economy. And there were lots of concerns about the sustainability of whaling. People thought that there weren't going to be enough whales in the ocean. And it wasn't sustainability concerns or it's not that people cared about whales. It was that kerosene was invented. It was a cheaper, cleaner way to light our homes. And it totally decimated the whaling industry. You know, we used to uh, live pluck geese, something really torturous, so that we could write letters. In fact, Thomas Jefferson was such a prolific letter writer that in Monticello, he had his own flock of geese just for live plucking, just so he could have all these quills. And nobody stopped live plucking geese because of campaigns for geese, they stopped because metal fountain pens were invented and it was a better way to write, a far superior way to write than a quill pen. And so you look at all of these ways and the list goes on and on. Like that's only three examples. The list goes on and on of categories of animal exploitation that were ended not by humane concern, but by, but because of technological innovation that rendered animal exploitation just totally obsolete. Like it just couldn't compete. And so I started thinking like, what if I'm trying to get like less horrible living conditions for animals, but is there something that I could be doing that would get even more like do the metal, like that would be the equivalent of metal fountain pens. And at that time there, the, um, there were more people who were working on growing animal meat without, uh, actual animals and plant-based meat was getting a lot better. And in 2013, the world's first cultivated burger, real animal meat grown from animal cells rather than from animal slaughter, was debuted. 
And I was like, this is amazing. I, I don't know how I can be a part of this. Cause like, I, you know, I'm not a scientist. I'm not a tissue engineer. I don't have like millions to invest like a venture capitalist. Um, I don't have a business background. Like I wasn't really sure what I could do that would be helpful except to publicly tout it and say like, this is a good thing to do. And so I was doing that. Um, but eventually I thought, well, you know, I can write. And so I thought maybe I'll, I'll pitch a book proposal to promote this industry because there's no books about it. And, you know, you only get one chance to make a first impression. And this is an industry that really deserves to make a good first impression because of how much good it could do for animals and the rest of the world. And so um, to make a long story short, Simon & Schuster bought this book proposal for a book called Clean Meat, How Growing Meat Without Animals Will Revolutionize Dinner in the World. And I got very fortunate. Um, I, you know, I, I'd never published a book before. I didn't know what would come of it. And I just got really fortunate with it. And I think it's not that like, it's such an awesome book though. I think it is a good book, but I just, there, you know, sometimes the world works in your favor. And so like the wall street journal did a very lengthy uh, review of it and PR reviewed it, it hit the Washington post bestseller list. And it transformed my life in a way uh, that was unexpected. And I had an opportunity to, you know, continue writing about, the people who I thought were going to really solve this problem, or I could just become one. And I chose the latter. And so I co-founded a company in the food tech space called The Better Meat Co. And uh, more than four years later, it's, it's still going strong. And uh, somehow we're doing some good for animals in the world. <laughs> I have a lot of questions. <laughs> it's funny because I've gotten to see the transformation, uh, at least part of it. and. And still, I want to dive dive deeper into a few things. For those who don't know what clean meat is, and and for those who may know of it, but it makes them feel uncomfortable because they're vegan and they don't they don't think it is needed. Because why? When all these plant based in, uh, companies exist, uh, can you explain why it's good for the world? Uh, sure. So, uh, you know, if you think about the problem of fossil fuels, there's lots of options that you want in, as an alternative. You know, you don't want just wind, you don't just want solar, you don't just want geothermal, you need a whole suite of options because we're addicted to fossil fuels, we need to wean ourselves off of them. And it's not going to be just one thing that does it, it's going to be a combination of things. Similarly, with factory farms, uh, it's such a problem for the world that you need lots of alternatives. Plant-based is great. I wish that we didn't even need plant-based meat. I, mean, I wish that people would just eat bean and rice burritos and tofu and lentil soup and hummus. Like, that would be awesome. It would be great. Uh, you know, but sadly, that's not what people want. I was giving a talk at a veg fest, and I, I, there were two booths that were next to each other. It was such an amazing juxtaposition. One was uh, kale and quinoa wraps, uh, which sounds great to me. And the other was Beyond Burgers. And there was literally zero people in the line for the kale quinoa wraps and the line for the beyond burgers was probably half an hour wait and people were just waiting it was stretched around and so even at a veg fest for all these people who want to eat vegetarian food are there what they want is something that mimics meat uh the reality is like, i wish it weren't true but people want to eat meat and that's just the reality i wish it weren't true i don't care for it myself like it doesn't bother me just to eat tofu and lentil soup but most people want to eat meat meat demand is going up not down and that's surprising sometimes to fellow vegans when i mention that but in the u.s not just because population is going up but per person meat demand continues to go up it's going up in the u.s it's going up in china up in brazil up in india up in mexico all the places it's going to matter the most in the future meat demand is going up not down when you combine that on a per person basis with the fact that there's 8 billion humans walking around on the planet and by 2050, we're going to have another 2 billion of us added, 
like how much more forest are we going to cut down? Like how many more animals should go extinct so that we can keep feeding ourselves? We're not going to be farming the moon. We're not going to be farming Mars. Like we have one celestial body to farm. And so the question is like, what can we do? And so if you think that plant-based meat can get it done all on its own, that's great. Um, but I'm skeptical of that. Um, plant-based meat, despite being on the market for decades, still is at less than 1% of the total volume of meat that's sold in the U.S. And I know that tons of uh, people are turning toward plant-based milks. What percentage of plant-based milks are in the milk category being consumed? So in the fluid milk category, plant-based milk is now comprising about 15%. Um, so it's so a huge difference. It's a massive difference, you know, 15% to less than 1%. It's a massive difference. But keep in mind, even then, you know, that still means 8.5 cartons out of 10 cartons of milk are coming from cows. And to make matters even worse, because uh, dairy cheese consumption is going up and it's way more uh, milk intensive to use cheese than to drink milk directly, that the number of dairy cows isn't actually going down, which is what really matters. So you haven't seen like a 15% reduction in milk cows. It's just because there, there's so much cheese that's being produced. For those of you, well, no one can see us, but I feel like Michelle and I started this really perky and like sitting upright <laughs> and like the, the longer this episode goes on and the more we talk about how meat consumption is going up and dairy, and, and dairy cows are being used at a higher rate, we're like deflating. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it's crazy because in our little work bubble, it just feels like so much progress is happening and it feels like everyone's going vegan and the grocery stores are changing and everything. And you would just, I just assume that, oh my God, we're so close to a kind <laughs> world. And it's a really good reality check to think like, okay, there's a lot of work to be done. We need to get down yeah. and buckle down and be doing the work. <laughs> yeah. And, and I do think that the realistic point of view is to, to admit that there is a lot of progress. Like there really is a lot of advancement being made on the popularization and mainstreaming of plant-based cuisine. I, mm -hmm. I think that's true. But what matters the most is how many animals are being raised for food. And that number continues to go up, not down. And so to answer your question directly, Tony, if you think that plant-based meat can do it all, that's awesome. I'm skeptical of that. It, it has not even breached the 1% threshold. It's still sold at dramatically higher prices than animal-based meat, which is the biggest barrier here. So it's not sold at like 20 or 30% more. It's like two or 300% more the cost of animal-based meat. And animal-based meat is going up. But the problem is, uh, you know, pea protein, which is a key ingredient in these products, is also going up. In the last year, it's gone up 120% in price, actually. And so, you know, people think, well, you know, peas are cheaper than beef. So why is a, why is a pea protein-based burger like a Beyond Burger so much more expensive than a beef burger? And the answer is not, oh, there's subsidies and all that. The real answer is because you're not using the whole pea. You know, there's a tiny little fraction of the pea that you're using, the protein, like to get pea protein, you strip out the fiber, strip out the fat, concentrate it down into the pea protein powder. Then you have to subject it to something that's called twin screw extrusion, which is like a fancy way of saying high pressure, high heat to change the structure of the protein to make it more stringy, like which is how you get a so-called texturized vegetable protein. So it's texturized like animal meat. And so all of that costs money and it's just more expensive um, to uh, make that burger than it is to make a burger from a cow. Like it's sad. I wish it weren't true. And I hope that will change. And I think there's all types of government policies that we hope will change in the future that would make that a, a more even playing field. But for now, like there's not a clear pathway. 
And it's unclear to me how it happens. So that doesn't mean that cultivated meat is um, better than plant-based meat. It just means that you want more than one option. And I think that there are a lot of people out there who want what they perceive as like the so-called real thing. And that if you could have actual animal meat that was at cost competitive prices, I think a lot of people would be quite happy to eat it. Now, it's hard for them to do that, too. Like cultivated meat is not going to be cheaper than meat anytime soon. It's That's a really hard thing to do. Uh, the only thing that I think of as uh, eventually in the near term being cheaper than commodity meat is using fungi fermentation, which is what we do at the Better Meat Co. And I'm happy to talk about that, too. But that's like a third option. So you've got plant based, you've got animal cell culture or cultivated meat, and then you also have fungi. And these are it's kind of like wind, solar and geothermal. Like you just have these different ways to recreate the meat experience to satiate humanity's meat tooth without animals. I want to go back to my question about. Uh, cultivated meat and why, if someone is feeling uncomfortable, uh, why it is good for the world? Sure. Well, first of all, it's not for vegans. So if you are vegan and you don't want to eat it, great. No problem. The goal is not for you to eat it. The goal is for people who are eating meat from factory farms to eat this instead. And so if you could recreate the meat experience without having to raise and slaughter animals, uh, you'd be doing a great thing for animal welfare, a great thing for climate. Um, and for people who argue, well, you know, this isn't healthy. Well, first of all, you know, the people are eating meat right now. So they'd be switching to this. So presumably there's not a big difference. But second, you know, I just don't think that um, most like the people who I hear, the vegans who I hear complaining about the health aspect of this oftentimes are posting about the newest vegan ice cream, the newest vegan nachos or cheese pizza. Like they're clearly, the health is not their primary motivation. Uh, but even if it is, even if you're a whole foods plant-based vegan, which is awesome, I think that's like the best way to live from a health perspective, that's great. Um, don't eat this then. But, you know, I wish, you know, it's kind of like saying like, I, I wish that, people would walk and bike more, but people really want to drive. Like that's what they want to do. So we got to make cars that don't rely on fossil fuels. Well, I wish that people didn't want meat, but they do. So we got to make meat that doesn't rely on animals. And the way to do that is to not just put like all of your uh, bottles of just egg in one basket. It's to try to instead mm -hmm. figure out like, what are the ways that we can hedge the bet to see if something is going to work. And so this isn't like, I'm not saying it's a vegan food. I don't really care whether vegans eat it at all. Uh, in fact, the surveys show that the vegans are the least likely to eat it. So there's actually the less meat you eat is um, inversely correlated with uh, your desire to eat cultivated meat. So people who eat very little meat don't want to eat cultivated meat, whereas the people who eat a lot of meat seem quite happy to eat it oftentimes. Okay, so vegans don't eat it, but can you explain a little bit about the process and how it's actually not harmful to the animals and how it could be beneficial to the world? Sure. So imagine if you have like a sesame seed sized biopsy, literally a sesame seed sized biopsy that can be taken either from an anesthetized animal or not. I mean, you know, plenty of people get that size of a biopsy without being anesthetized, right? It's, it's just not that bad. Um, it's, it's minuscule. But in that you have millions and millions of cells, millions of cells. Uh, many of them are called satellite cells. These are cells that their only job in life is to build more muscle. So when you do a hard workout or you get bruised, like they're there latent in your muscle and they go to work and they start producing new muscle for you. Well, that's what meat is, just new muscle. And so what you can do is take those cells and basically culture them in conditions that replicate what's going on inside the animal's body, same temperature, same pH, same type of nutrients and so on. And because their only career path in life is to build more muscle, that's what they do. And they basically think that they're still in the body and they just create new muscle. And so you can create meat with a minuscule fraction of the land needed, of the water needed, of the um, resources in general needed to produce meat today. 
So you can produce real actual animal meat, not an alternative, not a substitute, but real actual animal meat without causing uh, animal slaughter, without causing factory farming, without causing so much uh, deforestation and water use. Like it is a tiny little footprint on the planet and on animals compared to how we do it today. Again, if you think, oh, I don't want to eat that for whatever reason, like you're offended by the biopsy, uh, which only happens once, by the way, uh, or if you are, um, you know, you don't want to eat meat for whatever reasons, whether, you know, you think it's bad for you or you have a religious opposition, great, don't eat it. Um, but nine out of 10 people on the planet, if not more, want to eat meat. And so we need to find ways to, again, satiate that meat tooth. And if anyone is interested in exploring it in depth, you can check out Paul's book, Clean Meat, which we'll link in our show notes. And also there's this really good commercial that just put out of their, uh, I think they were working on chicken and they have the chicken mm -hmm. who was, whose cells they used in the commercial with them. And so there's like this whole picnic happening and the chicken's roaming free and it's really, <laughs> yeah, it's they're... really cute. Yeah, you know, what's interesting, as far as just is concerned, uh, they actually didn't do any biopsy from that chicken. They just took stem cells from the tip of a feather that had fallen out of that chicken's body. And they grew actual chicken meat and ate chicken nuggets from that chicken cells directly in front of the chicken. Uh, it's pretty amazing to think about, like, how this seems like a Jetsons type future, you know, but it's not sci-fi, it's sci-fact. We, I mean, we talk a lot about on this podcast, just the idea of perfection with veganism. And I think that's what people are attaching to this word vegan and an animal was technically used in some way, even though it doesn't impact them. And that's how the, I think maybe misunderstanding comes right. about with cultured meat. But in reality, like vegan is just a means to explain trying to find situation to do the least harm. None of us are perfectly vegan. Like, so. Right. And, you know, it's not like this is a religion. You know, sometimes you, you, know, you talk to people, let's say, you know, let's say somebody tells you that they're Christian and you say, okay, well, you know, you follow all the rules in the Bible. And they say, well, no, of course not all the rules. And you say, yeah, but okay, at least like the Ten Commandments, right? And like, oh, definitely the Ten Commandments. Like, okay, so you keep the Sabbath holy, right? And they're like, well, you know, I, I don't know about that. And you're like, okay, so you don't even follow the Ten Commandments. And yet nobody questions whether you're a Christian. Christian, maybe some fundamentalist will, but nobody in mainstream society says you're not a Christian. And then it's like a vegan, like all of a sudden it's like one thing that occurs and like, oh, oh, oh see, I got you. You're not vegan. It's like, this <laughs> yeah. isn't some fundamentalist orthodox religion. This as you correctly point out, Michelle, in my opinion, this is a way to try to live your life in such a way that it does as little harm on the planet as possible within pragmatic reason. And uh, my desire to be vegan isn't because of the label. It's not because there's some definition I'm trying to adhere to. It's basically an easy proxy for me to say, I am trying to do the best I can and cause as little suffering as possible. You're never going to be cruelty-free. You're never going to stop causing suffering. We all hurt people's feelings. We drive and pollute and fly and we create waste. Like there's all types of things that we're going to do. And I actually think that a lot of the things that we vegans do on a regular basis causes far more harm to animals than cultivated meat does. Uh, you know, uh, driving or flying unnecessarily, which I do, um, you know, like that causes a lot of harm through the creation of roads and habitat loss and climate changing emissions and more. Um, and yet nobody says, oh, you're not vegan for that. <laughs> it's like, what's the definition? What does it matter? Like, who cares what the definition is? The goal is to try to reduce the amount of harm that you're causing. Right. Yeah. I mean, our produce is grown in in soil that has animal products in it. So there's no perfect. But yeah, yeah, I think, yeah that's a really good point. Like, it's very common to use animal manure and animal blood 
in especially in organic produce where they use a lot of animal blood and a lot of animal manure and nobody's saying, oh, you know, like that tomato isn't vegan, mm-hmm. um, where it literally used animal blood to make it. We have to take ourselves out of this black and white thinking and into a more complex, like we're human beings. We have the capacity think, to think in gray and to make evaluations based on complex, you know, topics with, with different information based on what we have. And it's, Right. I think a lot of people struggle to do that. Yeah. Imagine if like environmentalists were saying, oh, actually, like mandating fuel improvement, fuel efficiency improvements wasn't good because it doesn't get people walking more. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, like, well, it's true. But, you know, if you get the automakers to improve fuel efficiency by 10 miles a gallon, you end up reducing emissions massively massively. Um, and yeah, I wish that we'd have better public transport and more walkable communities. That's great. It shouldn't be in lieu of these other things, but we should accept progress where it occurs. We don't want to, as you said, let the perfect be the enemy of the good. We want to applaud progress where it occurs. So for people who are not vegan or just someone who's contemplating cultured meat or maybe says, it's not for me, it's not real. I'd rather eat the real thing. What are some benefits that they might not have considered of cultured meat versus going the factory farming route or just the any farming route? Uh, Yeah, sure. Well, so first of all, uh, there's massive antibiotic usage in animal agriculture that's absent from cultured meat. So that's one big benefit, both from an antibiotic resistance point of view and an antibiotic residue point of view. Um, But perhaps even more tangibly for people is that this meat is cleaner. So, you know, right now, if you go to the supermarket, you're warned to treat raw meat, you know, almost like toxic waste. You know, you have to separate it out in your supermarket basket. They put it in different bags. You bring it home. If the raw meat touches your counter, you have to disinfect your counter. If it touches your hands, you got to wash your hands. Like you don't do that with produce. Like nobody's like, you know, touching an apple and like, oh, I got to wash my hands. Right. And the reason is because there's fecal matter on the, on the meat, right? There's E. coli, salmonella, Campylobacter. These are intestinal pathogens that can sicken us if we don't cook the crap out of the meat. Literally, you're literally cooking the crap mm-hmm. out of the meat. And with queen meat or cultivated meat, you don't have to worry as much about fecal pathogens because you're not growing intestines at all. Like E. coli and salmonella are intestinal pathogens, and you're growing just muscle and fat. You're not growing the intestines. And so, from a food safety perspective, you are more likely to infect the meat with your hands than the meat is to infect you. And so growing queen meat is a way safer way to produce meat than the current system that we have, which you just assume that the raw meat has to be handled almost like toxic waste. Okay. So we've gone a little bit down on this and and (laughs) Michelle and I are both like face on the table now. Can you build us back up with what you're doing at Better Meat Co. and what you're hoping to accomplish and then also You've talked a lot about how only less than 1% of plant-based meat is in the meat market. What opportunities are there for these other pathways? And can we feel optimistic? Like right now we're feeling pretty sad and like... Heartbroken. Well, yeah, we need but. better. We we need better technology. So um, the, the thing about it like this, you know, many vegans. When you ask them why are you vegan, they'll say, "Oh, well, I support animals, the environment, my health." Those are like the three pillars of the vegan argument: are animals, environment, and health. All of which I agree with. But the three things that actually motivate most food purchasing decisions are not animal welfare or the environment or health. The things that actually motivate most food purchasing decisions are how does it taste. Is it affordable and is it convenient? Like taste, price, and convenience are the holy trinity of what's motivating most food choices. And to date, 
alternative meats have not really competed on those three things. They're getting better on taste. They're getting better on convenience, meaning they're in fast food restaurants and at Costco and other places where most food is sold. Um, but you know, and so it used to be that they didn't taste as good as they do. You had to go to like a co-op or a natural food store to get them. Like now they're actually proliferating in mainstream, uh, places where people buy food and they're getting better in taste, but on price, they are not there yet. And so the question is like, can you make better and better tasting animal free meats for less money? And that's what we at the Better Meat Co. are trying to do. So the Better Meat Co. is a food tech company based in Sacramento that is still a small company. We only have 20 full-time employees, but we're a small company doing big things. And rather than using plant protein isolates like pea protein or soy protein or wheat protein, and rather than using animal cells, which we don't do either, we are using microscopic fungi. So fungi are a completely different kingdom than plants or animals. They're not just like plants. They're very different from plants. In fact, evolutionarily, they're far closer to animals than they are to plants. And so what we do is we take microscopic fungi and we subject them to a special kind of fermentation where we feed them agricultural byproducts. We take these very low value agricultural byproducts and feed them to our little microscopic fungi who love gorging on it and they grow up and they grow up fast. And then we harvest that what we call uh, Risa mycoprotein, MYCO mycoprotein. And you can use that as uh, the basis of forming any economical meat alternative that you want. And so our mycoprotein grows in less than a single day. So you think about how long you have to feed a cow prior to the cow being slaughtered, or a, which is more than a year, or a chicken who you slaughter at like 40 days. Well, our little microscopic fungi, we harvest after less than one single day. And when they are harvested, again, it's called, we call it rhizomycoprotein. And that mycoprotein on its own, comes out with a very meat-like texture and has more protein than eggs, and it's a complete protein, meaning it has all the essential amino acids that you need to live. So it has more protein than eggs, more iron than beef, more fiber than oats, more potassium than bananas, and it naturally contains vitamin B12, which of course plant-based foods don't have. And so this is like a true superfood, whether you're vegan or not. And you can use it to make burgers, steaks, chicken nuggets, chicken breasts, crab cakes, fish sticks, and more. And so this mycoprotein that we grow is so efficient. The process is so economical that we are already producing at costs that are competitive with beef today, not in the future, but today. And our goal is to scale up to a point where we can be producing our mycoprotein as an ingredient for the food industry at chicken competitive prices. So beef is a lot more expensive than chicken. And our goal is to get down to commodity chicken prices, which is really like the cheapest meat that's out there. And so we've built a fermentation facility in Sacramento. This is not a bench scale operation. It's not just, you know, fooling around in the lab. Like we've built fermenters that go three stories into the sky. And they are churning out mycoprotein that we sell to food companies, but it's not enough. Like we can produce thousands of pounds, but we can't produce the tens of millions or billions of pounds that we have to produce in order to actually make a dent in this problem. And so our next goal is to build a facility that will be about 30 times bigger than what we've built now with fermenters that go up like 10 stories into the air and with a lot of them. And so we can have a river of our mycoprotein flowing through the food industry, helping to reduce humanity's footprint on the planet and dramatically slashing the number of animals who are needed for food. Wow. It's been fun watching this journey uh, just transpire with you evolving what you want to focus on and seeing you land in this path 
uh, I wouldn't have predicted 10 years ago, <laughs> but also just seeing you land in this path when it wasn't like what you grew up as a kid wanting to do. Yeah, yeah, that's for sure. Uh, but I mean, you're capable of pretty much anything you put your mind to, Paul, specifically. <laughs> you just have a good brain, but it's it's fascinating seeing the growth of this and the potential because I know, Tony, you're saying we have our head on the table, but I actually feel really optimistic because with cultured meat, you can give everyone exactly what they want without the animal. So like the solution is there. We just have to make it happen and have good marketing around it. Right. Eventually, but having different alternatives that like make it possible by keeping the price lower and just by being functionally able to turn out so much so fast once the system is built and once you sell the people on the concept, because it's so new and novel and different. Like I feel so optimistic. Paul, Michelle just mentioned the the time difference. So if, say you get to um, price comparable with chicken. What does that look like for how long it takes to raise a chicken versus how long it takes to create your product? Most chickens are slaughtered at about 40 days of age right now. And so that's, you know, you're feeding them for 40 days. We're concluding our process within hours, not days. And beef, what is beef? Like how long does it take to raise a cow for, for a, consumption? A conventionally raised cow would be about 14 months, but if they're grass fed, it's about two years. And so this is why grass fed beef generally, you know, involves, involves a lot more greenhouse gas emissions than feedlot beef. So, um, there's just a lot of, uh, a lot of problems when you're talking about animal agriculture because the the alternatives which are purported to be better oftentimes might be better in one sense like for animal welfare but worse in another sense like in climate change and so it's just better to erase the animal from the equation altogether like you're just better off going to plants and animal cells and fungi than you are by trying to figure out better ways to exploit animals and one of my favorite things that better Me Co is doing is Taking the decision away from the consumer right now, people are people are having some decision fatigue and they, they don't even know what to look for and what's good. There are so many things that are marketed at you or what's good or what's not good. And you're working with companies right now who are, are taking those heavy decisions away from the consumers and making it healthier for them already. Yeah, I, I I think like if you go back to the fossil fuel example, like think about somebody who walks into a room, they flip on a light switch, like they're not contemplating whether the light is coming from coal or oil or wind or solar. Like they just want the experience of an illuminated room. They don't want to have to choose. They don't want to have to do the math. They just want light. That's what they're after is a lit up room. Similarly, when people eat meat, they're not thinking, oh, I'm so glad an animal was slaughtered for this, right? Like if they do think about an animal, they, they might prefer the animal not be used actually. And so I don't think that most people really care as long as it's tastes good is safe and they can afford it. Like I think most people are quite happy to eat whatever type of meat is in front of them. And so, you know, just in the same way that people don't want to have to choose when they flip on a light switch, what type of energy they're getting. They just are mainly, if it's their own house, they're probably thinking what's the cheapest energy I can get. Uh, well, similarly, when people eat meat, I think that they don't want to have to necessarily make a whole menu option of choices that they have and get like what you call decision fatigue. I think they just want something that tastes good and is cost effective for them. And using uh, fungi fermentation, like we do at the Better Meat Co, I believe is going to provide a really economical way to do this. It's not the only way, but it's a really economical way. And you can imagine hybridizing these things too. So you could, for example, use animal cell culture to get real animal cells 
and have them grow around the uh, mycelium, which is a, basically a way of saying fungi roots, which is what we grow. You can have them grow around it. So you have a hybrid between like cultivated animal cells and mycelium. So you get the benefit of both of those. Or you could combine mycelium with plant-based products. And so you could have like pea protein fungi combinations. Um, you could also combine it with actual animal meat. So, you know, you could dramatically reduce the number of animals needed. Like imagine, you know, think about it like this. Like if you go to Burger King right now, you can get an Impossible Whopper, right? But according to news reports, like the Impossible Whopper in the best-selling store is like 2% of sales, uh, which is great. You know, 2%, nothing to be uh, ashamed of. But imagine if in addition to having the Impossible Whopper, they also blended the conventional Whopper at 50% let's say with mycelium. And so you have a product now that has like 50% less saturated fat, 50% less cholesterol, 50, you know, dramatically lower footprint on animals and the environment. You would have a 50% reduction in beef rather than a 2% reduction. And so they're not exclusive, but you can use these ingredients to hybridize meat also so that people who are eating meat are having a much lighter footprint too. And also, also when you use that analogy from turning on the light switch and, and how it's similar to what you're doing. Uh, if you were to tell someone, Hey, you turned on the light switch and it was solar powered and, and, and that's super cool. They would be excited about it. Yes. They didn't have to make that decision, but it's pretty cool. And then that's the same as if you tell someone this is healthier for you and it has a lower footprint, uh, that is also exciting news to hear. Yeah, it's like a, a secondary or tertiary thing for people. It's not going to be what necessarily motivates most people, but it's cool once they, if they're like, hey, this this was cost effective for me and it's also better for the planet, sign me up. You know, it's kind of like for, let's say people who buy Teslas, most of them, they're not like climate warriors, right? They're buying it because it's this really amazing car. Now, imagine if Tesla were actually cost competitive with, you know, regular cars, let's say. I think you would have people who would all of a sudden be like, wow, this is awesome. I'm saving the planet or, you know, whatever. Um, even though like the primary motivator wasn't necessarily that it's an electric car. Um, they just wanted a better car. And so I think the same is here. What you're saying is right. That if people can find it cost effective and it tastes the same, if not better, and it happens to be better for the world, that's a great plus. So the goal here is making it so the people who don't want to put in effort or change their lifestyle <laughs> can <everybody>. just by <laughs> default, well, most people yeah, can yeah, by default yeah. be making an option that's good for the world, good for the planet, good for themselves. And then there's a small amount of people, and I think a lot of our listeners fall into that camp, who are ready to make the effort and to do something that's out of their own convenience or that's different from what they're used to, to try and create a better world either for themselves or for the world or for animals or all three of those things. So one of the things that I love uh, that you hold within you, Paul, is just perspective after having studied this for decades, what we can do to be most effective in our own lives. And I know I come to you a lot just being like, what can I do that's going to make the most impact? And in three seconds, you can tell me. So what can people uh, who are listening do? Like, what can they take away from this? I think a big thing is just taking this out of a negative light and shining a positive light because it is such a positive thing. There's so much misunderstanding. But what else can people do? Well, obviously, the most impactful thing people can do is to buy Michelle and Tony's book, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, no, so although the friendly vegan is good. Um, I think there's a lot of things that folks can do. And I certainly don't perceive myself as some oracle or fount of wisdom on this. Like I've changed my mind so many times in my life about what I think is the best thing to do for animals that 10 years from now, maybe I'll be thinking something different also. I, I really don't know. Um, but I do think that we should go with where the evidence leads us. And at this point, I really do think that food technology and innovation is going to be really critical. So there are numerous ways to support that. Like one is to support the companies that are doing this. I could be buying their products, promoting them on social media. 
um, if you have the capacity being an investor in these companies or even starting your own company. You know, one of the things that I learned from writing Clean Meat is that the people who are starting these companies, they're not like these business wizards, right? You know, like I think about, um, let's just take Eat Just since you mentioned them, like, you know, Josh Tetrick, their CEO, he had no business experience, no science experience. Like this guy was an attorney whose main claim to fame was that he had been let go from a law firm he was working at. Like this is just somebody who wanted to make a difference in the world. And now he's running a company that's worth billions of dollars that he co-founded. Uh, or even take Perfect Day, which I think you guys have talked about on the show before. It's a company that makes uh, real cow's milk without, um, or real cow milk proteins without cows at all. They just do it through fermentation. And this is a company that was started by two people who were like in their early 20s or 22 years old. They never even met in person. And they met on a video chat and they're like, hey, I have an idea that I think we can do this. And they didn't have, they weren't like business titans or serial entrepreneurs. They're just these two people who thought, we have an idea that we think that we can create cow's milk through fermentation rather than through cows. And so they decided without ever having met each other in person to start a company. And you fast forward eight years later, and according to news reports, the company is worth $1.5 billion. They have great products. They've got Brave Robot ice cream. They've got California cultured whey protein. They're all animal free. And, you know, you just look at this and it's like, if these folks can do it, why can't you? Like, maybe you're the person to start the next company that's going to be the next Beyond Meat or the next Eat Just or the next Impossible Foods and so on. And so I, I just think there's too many people who are waiting for other people to go out there and do something when even if you think, well, I'm not a scientist or I'm, I'm not a business person, like, who cares? Find people who are. You can go start your own company. Or if you don't want to, I mean, I'll tell you, look, I, I did start my own company and I'll tell you, like, it's a stressful thing to do. Like the head with the crown is always the heaviest. It is like a difficult thing to do. But you can go work there too. These companies are hiring for all types of roles, including the Better Meat Co. If you go to our website, bettermeat.co, you can see what roles we're hiring for. But lots of these companies are hiring and they're hiring not just people who are tissue engineers or microbiologists. Like, you know, they need all types of people. They need accountants. They need HR people. They need video specialists. They need graphic designers. Like there's all types of roles at these companies that they're hiring for. And so even if you think that you don't have like a technical background, still you might be a good fit for these companies. Paul's colleague, Doni Kirkendall, was recently at the Reducitarian Conference on a panel and was talking about how she, she had been working in the nonprofit sector and didn't think that her skill set would translate, but she gave it a try, and now it's such a huge part of her life. So even if you feel a little bit like out of out of your comfort zone, out of your element, you've never tried working in the food space, give it a try. Explore explore the the position. Send in your resume, and you could love it, and it could change your whole life. Uh, it could. And I, I think about so many people, whether they've come out of the nonprofit sector or just unrelated sectors who are now doing wonderful things in this space, who are doing really cool, innovative technology. And, you know, startups are, are hard to do. Most often they fail. Um, but you could be one of those folks who really makes a big impact. And so whether you're working for them or founding them, I just think that this is uh, among the most underexplored ways to help animals and the planet that is out there right now. Well, thank you so much for coming on to the Plant Powered People podcast and for sharing your experience. It's been a pleasure talking to you. <laughs> <laughs> as, as contrasted normally when you talk with me. <laughs> you say thank you. 
<laughs> Do you have any final words of uh, that you want to share, and then where people can find you or connect with you? Uh, yeah, I, yeah. Let's just say like a, a couple final thoughts on this, which is that you know I, I'd like to live in a world where our relationship with animals is no longer just based on violence and domination; rather, it's based on compassion and respect. And it's, how do you get there? And many people, especially vegans, they think, well, we'll change people's minds about animals, and then they will stop eating them, let's say. I actually think it works in the opposite direction. Most people find it easier to act their way into a new way of thinking than to think their way into a new way of acting. And so in the same way that we didn't stop exploiting whales because we cared about them, but after we stopped exploiting them, we started caring about them a lot more. You know, now we have a huge industry devoted not to killing whales, but to photographing whales. Um, we didn't stop exploiting horses because we cared about them. But since we did stop, now most people view horses as basically companion animals as rather than uh, labor animals. Um, it's just it's very um, easy for us now that we're no longer relying on the exploitation of animals of those categories of animals to feel differently about them. And I think the cognitive dissonance is so high for people to care about animals that they're eating that it's like you need to help find ways to reduce the number of them who they are eating first, and then they will feel differently about them. And so I actually believe that if we can invent technologies that really do render ob obsolete the exploitation of chickens and pigs and turkeys and cows and so on, that it'll be easier for people to see them in a more accurate light, that these are intelligent animals, that they are individuals, they have likes and dislikes and preferences. And at that point, I think that people are going to be horrified at what we used to do to animals, and they're going to be so grateful that we no longer have to do to animals what we used to do in order to eat meat, just in the same way that if we think about it, we're grateful that we no longer have to harpoon whales to light our homes anymore. And so in the same way that like, you know, Copernicus and Galileo helped us to understand that we aren't the center of the physical universe, maybe once we are no longer reliant on the exploitation of animals for food, we can start seeing them differently too and start saying, well, maybe we're not the center of the moral universe either. That maybe the other animals on this planet are here, not just merely for us, but also here with us. And that's the type of world that I would like to live in. And I hope that we can invent technologies that make that possible sooner rather than later. Thank you so much, Paul. Thank, Thank you. you. Before we go, we'd like to give a quick reminder to check out our sponsors of this episode, Organifi. You can visit them at Organifi.com slash plant power and use that code plant power to get 20% off your order. And Caraway Home, you can find them at carawayhome.com slash plantpoweredkitchen and use that code plantpoweredkitchen to get 10% off your purchase. Wow, what a what a great conversation. I feel like I walked away learning a lot. And I, as I always do talking to Paul, his brain is so fun to pick. And it's really cool finally getting him introduced to all of you listening here to the podcast. We love using this space as kind of our more, most intimate channel to bring you into our own personal lives. And so, yeah, this is fun. It was a fun, Tony. Tony? Yeah, it was. As, as people who are part of my audience know, I'm incredibly private. And so this is special. And I'm glad we have this podcast that allows our audience a little bit closer into our lives. Yeah. And, and yeah, so thanks for being here with us. And Hope you enjoyed this episode. If you are interested in supporting the podcast, you can check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash plantpoweredpeople. You can also leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We love your feedback and appreciate it so much. We're grateful to have you as part of our community. So thank you, thank you, thank you. And we'll catch you in the next one. Have a beautiful day. Bye. Bye.